Our first scripture this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48. Listen now for God's word to us. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our second scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. Listen again for God's word to us. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy that person, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools, so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast about human leaders, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, we began with the first half of what's called the antitheses. And that's these sayings of Jesus that follow that familiar formula. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And we, I told you last week that if you thought those, dif- those teachings were difficult, that you better buckle up because this is when it gets really tough this week. It's only getting more difficult. And so here we are at these incredibly difficult teachings. Perhaps the most difficult, I think, as far as teachings of Jesus go. I'm really not sure that it gets tougher than this to to interpret, to, to figure out what this means for us in our context. Because not only is it difficult for us to turn the other cheek, give up our cloaks, go the extra mile, love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute us, Jesus gets really serious and tells us that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Now, a couple months ago, we did a short series on peace and what it means, you know, from peace on, from the perspective of the Bible 
and how that pertains to, to us today. And during that series, we read this very text about turning the other cheek, loving the enemy, those things. And at that time, we talked particularly about the importance of understanding the Roman context of occupation uh, for these teachings, why that was so important. And I don't want to preach that same sermon because, you know, that might be more boring even than usual. Um, but it would be helpful to, to maybe remember a few things that we talked about then. And essentially, by exhorting his disciples to turn the other cheek, to offer their cloak and court, and to go the extra mile, Jesus is not commanding them to be doormats. He is not saying, let anyone walk all over you. Whoever wants to walk all over you, let them do it. That is to say, the actions that he teaches are very thoughtful. They're creative. And they're in response to very specific situations of real and concrete oppression. These are responses meant to expose the cruelty and absurdity of, of the situation that the Jews found themselves in at that time. They're creative ways of responding that demand that the one in power in that situation see the other person as a human being, to recognize their humanity, not simply as an object to be discarded or ignored. It's important for us to remember the audience that Jesus is talking to at this time, who he is speaking to. It's probably predominantly made up of poor Jewish peasants in the Galilean countryside. These are not the powerful. These are not the wealthy. These are, if you remember back to the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. These are the meek. These are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because the world around them is so unrighteous. And Jesus is telling them that when they are confronted by these unfair and oppressive situations in their daily lives, that there are better ways of responding than either violent retaliation or simply sitting there and taking the abuse. But unfortunately, there have been many throughout the long history of biblical interpretation who have sought to use this text in a way as a way of justifying some of those systems that I think Jesus was speaking against. It has been, for instance, despicably used by some, and sometimes even in church leadership, to encourage people in abusive situations to remain in those situations, telling them that to turn the other cheek means to stay with that person to endure the abuse, and to pray for them through it. And I, I can't say any more clearly or more emphatically that this is not at all what Jesus is suggesting. In fact, I would argue it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is suggesting. What should hopefully be clear about these calls to action is precisely that. They're all about action. They're not about complacency or passivity in the face of injustice. These are some of the teachings that have inspired and spurned so many of the great Christian social movements throughout history. I think back to the African-American civil rights movement of the 1960s, and they took a page right out of Jesus' playbook with, with their strategy of nonviolent direct action. It was not passively sitting by and allowing for things to take place, but taking action. There's a, a powerful scene in a movie called The Long Walk Home, which uh, it's a movie all about the Montgomery bus boycott, which uh, I think encapsulates a lot of what Jesus is talking about very, very well. It displays this very well. There's a scene in this movie where there's these three white teenagers who 
are kind of harassing and, and attacking this, this young black girl. Uh, she's around their age, and they're, they're pushing her down, they're calling her names, it's this really bad situation. Her younger brother kind of comes up and sees what's going on, so he rushes to come defend her. And so then he's in the middle, surrounded by these three other boys who are much bigger than he. And finally, one of the boys punches him in the face, knocks him on the ground. And the, the younger boy, who's in the middle, he stands up. He stands up, and you see his, his fists are clenched, like he's ready to try to fight back. And he looks at the other boy right in the eyes and unclenches his fists and just stands there. So at this point, they're kind of confused as to what to do, what do we do now? And so the other boy who had already hit him once kind of takes a few more shots, you know, at his side and his stomach, knocks him over again. Same thing. Boy stands back up, unclenches his fists, and just looks at him right in the eyes. Right in the eyes. And so again, they're just, they don't know what this, they, they didn't expect this. They expected him to either run away or fight back or something. So then again, one last time, the, the bigger boy punches him in the face and knocks him over. And at this point, the other two who are there have this look of complete disgust on their face about what they just witnessed. And the one who, who did all the hitting, he appears equally disgusted. He's just completely thrown off by this situation, didn't expect that this child would stand up to him in that way without fighting back. He would stand up, would stand his ground, so to speak, without resorting to violence. And then eventually an adult comes along and they all kind of run off. But I think this is precisely the type of thing that Jesus was referring to when he talks about turning the other cheek. It requires a lot of us. It's incredibly difficult, sometimes even painful. But it's the way of Christ. It's the way of the kingdom of God. It's what we're called to. But one of the other difficulties, I think, that, that many of us have with this passage is, or with these teachings, is that when Jesus talks about loving our enemies, many of us might feel like we don't really have any enemies, right? At least not on a personal level. I, I mean, I generally get along with people pretty well, and outside of some heated sports rivalries, Roll Tide, there's, <laughs> there's no one that I can really think of that I would consider a personal enemy. All that excluded. Um, but, and, and I also hope and I think that there's no one who would consider me their personal en enemy. But the reality is that on some level, we do all have enemies, whether we choose them or not, whether we call them enemy or not. Just by virtue of being American, living where we do, we have enemies. And we're told repeatedly in the media exactly who our enemies are and how we're supposed to feel about them. We live in a world and in a country that is incredibly divided along so many different lines that we're constantly told which side we're supposed to be on. And if you're on this side, you're against this person. If you're on this side, you're against these people. If you're on this side, you're against those people. The lines are constantly drawn. This is the world that we live in. Like it or not, and again, whether we choose it or not, we all have enemies in some way. And I wonder if, if the hesitation that we feel about calling them enemies or admitting that we have enemies has something to do with the fact that if we admit that we do, in fact, have enemies, that we will then be responsible for what Jesus is saying. That we'll have to start taking him seriously here. That we'll have to really start living into that word that he speaks for us.
I think it's also important for us to take away from Jesus' teachings here the simple lesson that our bodies, what we do with our bodies, matter. So many of Jesus' teachings have to do with how we care for one another, how we treat one another, how we treat our own bodies and those the bodies of those around us, including how we look out for each other's physical well-being. You know, he constantly feed the, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those who are in prison. It's not simply enough to say nice things to people or to be friendly. The book of James reminds us and tells us that to simply offer to pray for someone is, is useless, that our prayer has to be coupled with real action behind it. What we do with, with our bodies and to other people's bodies matters to Jesus. Now, there's certainly, there's no doubt for us that our bodies are not permanent, that this physical world is, is passing away and will pass away, but God does care deeply about this world now and about our bodies now. Similarly, Paul tells us in the a section from 1 Corinthians we read today that we are a temple, that our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. He reminds us that our bodies are actually sacred in that way because God has chosen to dwell in us and that to destroy the temple is a dangerous enterprise because it has powerful consequences. Because, he says, God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And I think there's, there's kind of two sides of that temple metaphor that are worth lifting up. The first is that our own bodies are temples. Therefore, we ought to strive to care for our bodies, that we ought to treat them like the dwelling place of God's spirit that they are. Meaning, among other things, that we ought to try to live healthy lives. That so many of us, I mean, we have these kind of self-destructive habits that, that are not pleasing to God and that we ought to really take seriously this idea that we are God's dwelling place. That we should live in such a way that gives honor to God through our, through our bodies, which can be incredibly difficult sometimes, especially if, like me, you have a mountain of Girl Scout cookies in your, in your pantry, it can be difficult to say no to that. The other side, I think, of this, of the point of the temple metaphor, is recognizing the sacredness of other people's bodies as well. Recognizing their belovedness as well. That they are also the dwelling place of God's Spirit. And it can be tempting to think that we're only talking here about other Christians because we're talking about God's dwelling place, but we must also remember that right from the beginning, Genesis tells us that all people are created in the image of God. So in a very real and profound way, we are all bearers of God's image, whether we realize it or not. So there is something sacred about every person's body, and every body deserves to be treated well, to be respected and cared for, even the bodies of our enemies, those we have been taught to fear, because just as you are a temple, your enemy is also a temple, a bearer of God's own image. Last week, I'm sure you heard that the big story in our area had to do with uh, the trial of Michael Dunn, the man who, was, um, who, who had shot and killed 18-year-old Jordan Davis. And last Saturday night, he was convicted of three counts of attempted murder, 
for repeatedly firing shots into the vehicle as it was driving away, one count for each person in the vehicle. He was also convicted of firing a deadly missile at a at a vehicle, which was just you know shooting shooting a gun. But there was a mistrial declared on the charge of murder of the murder of, of Jordan Davis, the, the teenager that he killed. And I think a lot of what transpired that night at the gas station, though of course none of us were there to see it, had had especially to do with one person, or perhaps many people, not being able to recognize the sacredness of the other person's body, not being able to recognize the image of God in their neighbor. He immediately saw Jordan Davis as a threat, perhaps because he was a young black male and, and immediately assumed that he was up to no good, that he had that he was a thug. That was one of the words that we heard repeatedly. And I wonder how different that night would have been if he had sought to live out these difficult teachings of Jesus, if he had sought to love the person that he thought was his enemy, instead of reaching hastily for his gun and pulling the trigger ten times. In this case, loving his enemy and turning the other cheek could have been as simple as not saying anything about their loud music. It, it would have been as simple as ignoring it altogether, doing nothing. Sometimes, the more Christ-like thing to do is nothing. But I think more, more than any of that, I think it demonstrates to us just how difficult it can be to truly love our enemies because we, we want to say something. When something bothers us, we want to do something about it. But the other reality of this, the flip side of that, is that even given everything that Michael Dunn did, and I'm convinced that he was in the wrong in many ways, and so is our justice system, his body is also a temple. He is equally sacred and equally a bearer of God's divine image. He'll probably spend the rest of his life in prison or close to it, depending on the sentence. But in every single body that sits in our prison system is a temple, is sacred. No matter what they've done to get themselves in there, how we treat them matters. The Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky once said, you can judge a society by how well it treats its prisoners. Interestingly, Jesus and many others throughout the Bible also seem rather interested in how we treat our prisoners. So perhaps it's something we as a church ought to pay attention to. To me, one of the most powerful stories to come out of the whole trial was the reaction of Jordan Davis's mother. I can't imagine how she must have felt having gone through this entire ordeal and that though her son's killer would be in jail for a long time, he will remain officially unaccountable for her son's death. Even though he was not convicted of that charge and even though he showed no remorse for the events that took place that night, one of the first things that she said after the verdict came down was that she was praying for Michael Dunn because she can't imagine the difficulty of facing life in prison. She's also repeatedly asserted since then that she has forgiven him, not because he apologized or because he asked for it, but because she says her faith demands it. She doesn't have a choice because this is her faith. I can't begin to fathom the gamut of emotions that she must be facing right now. And in the midst of all that, she has somehow found a way to love her enemy, to see his body as a temple, as a bearer of God's own image. 
She doesn't see him simply as someone who deserves to be cast aside and vilified as some monster who should rot in a prison cell. She sees him as a child of God, deserving, as deserving of love and forgiveness as anyone else. What a powerful witness that is. Jesus ends his teaching this week by calling us to something somewhat impossible. Perfection. Be perfect, he says, as your heavenly father is perfect. I think people like Jordan Davis's mother teach us a little, little something about the type of perfection Jesus was getting at here. Not that she's a perfect person, of course not, but finding a way to do what would otherwise seem impossible because Christ commands it, I think is the kind of perfection Christ is talking about. Because if true moral perfection is our standard, then we will all fall short. There's no doubt about it. But there are profound moments that we can witness and experience. Jordan Davis's mother should see Michael Dunn as her enemy. But instead, she sees him as a temple, as a bearer of God's image. And she prays for him. Hopefully, it won't take a great tragedy to teach us how to love our enemies. Hopefully, this is something we can learn to do, that we can grow into, we can pray for as a, as a gift from God. Jesus calls us to something profound and radical, and perhaps even impossible. But this is what it means to live as a part of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we up to the task? May this be our prayer. Amen. <laughs>